And now, for the first time in color, the 38th Academy Award. And welcome back to The Snub Club. You know, with any truly great motion picture, the only thing that dates it really are the fashions of the time. The podcast with the movies that have the most Oscar noms and no wins whatsoever. This is the night devoted to one man, Oscar. Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club, the podcast where we have the movies that have the most Oscar noms but no wins whatsoever. I am your host, Danny Vincent. I, I don't know. You know what? Actually, I do have a long-winded joke that's going to sound very lame. But I was talking to a new coworker of mine, because it's going to be long with that's what's going to be lame. I was talking to a coworker of mine who was like, oh, yeah, I have an hour and a half commute home every day. And she, I'm like, oh, do you listen to podcasts? And she's like, yeah, I do. I mostly listen to Joe Rogan and true crime podcasts. So maybe the latter will let this podcast go out, this episode qualify for that podcast for listening. I don't know. <laughs> uh Okay. <laughs> well, I'm Sarah. I do not. I, mean, I found out today I do not endorse Joe Rogan. <laughs> we wanted to stay. We wanted to stay. <laughs> it has happened every single time I have had a new coworker at my job. We will ask each other about what we listen to. I'll say podcasts. They'll be like, do you listen to Joe Rogan? <laughs> It was really yeah, funny I too. I was the vibing because I don't want to start a fight. I was vibing with this coworker. Then as soon as she said that, I was like, "Oh, <laughs> I couldn't keep my mind to stay hidden." <laughs> she's like, "What? What's wrong with Joe Rogan?" I'm like, "No, he's just not my thing." You know, like that, that's well, why I like. Him. I he's feel like if you thing. listen to Joe Rogan, you have to know what's wrong. <laughs> it was just interesting too because the vibe she was giving me, like politically otherwise, because we'd already started talking about like politics and stuff, at least more than I normally do with co- new coworkers. And then she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm in the Joe Rogan. I'm like, well, that doesn't vibe with what we've been talking about, but all right. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't listen to this. It'll be really awkward if she's like, what the hell? Why are you talking about me on your podcast? <laughs> It'd only be weird if you said her name. Now, Danny, who is this person? Full name, please. I don't know her last name, so too bad anyway. You can't. Can't get it for me. Anyway. Happy Pride. Is this movie about gay people? Could be. Is this episode coming out during Pride? <laughs> no, actually, this episode comes out on my birthday. Happy birthday to me, guys. I'm 28. If I'm alive by the time this episode came out, I survived dying young. 28. Wow. I know. Please don't. Please, please, let's not dwell on it. Only two years till I get to spend my whole birthday just singing Andrew Garfield. Just kidding. Anyways, no, no, anyway, what are we doing? Year. Anyway, my second. Anyways. <laughs> We're at the 40th Academy Awards. I got a long countdown this week. With 10, we had two films with 10 nominations and two wins. The first is Bonnie and Clyde, which won Supporting Actress for Estelle Parsons and Best Cinematography. Then we have Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which won Best Actress for Katherine Hepburn and Best Original Screenplay. Then there was a film with nine nominations, Dr. Doolittle, which won two nominations, Visual Effects and Original Song for Talk to the Animals, which... Sidebar here, since we're not going to talk about original song the rest of this, how does that be the bare necessities? How? <laughs> then with seven nominations is a movie called In the Heat of the Night where it wins Best Picture, Best Actor for Rod Steger because the actual lead of the film was not nominated. Uh, uh, best Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best Film Editing. So that's the most wins of the night for In the Heat of the Night. Then there are two other films with seven nominations, but both of them only win one. The Graduate, which famously wins Best Director for Mike Nichols, being the last sole director winner until, of course, recently with The Power of the Dog. Um, for, um, what's his face? Uh, what's her face? Jane Campion. Sorry, I was suddenly stopping for a moment. Did, who won? I was trying to remember who won Best Director last year, but it was a Daniels. I know at a point we were thinking maybe Spielberg was going to do it, but Daniels pulled it off. Anyway, um, another, the other film was Thoroughly Modern Millie, which won one Oscar for original score, which surprised me. I didn't realize that film had an original score. Then there was a film with five nominations called Camelot, and unlike the recent revival on Broadway, it was pretty successful. It won three. <laughs> it won Best Adapted Score, it won Best Costume Design, and Best Art Direction. 
Then there were three films with four nominations. One of them was Cool Hand Loop, which won Supporting Actor for George Kennedy. One of them was The Dirty Dozen, which won Best Sound Effects, which was a separate word from Best Sound at this time. And then there was a little film by Richard Brooks called In Cold Blood, which better known as Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Sarah, what was In Cold Blood nominated for? So it was nominated for Best Director for Richard Brooks. Uh, he lost to Mike Nichols for The Graduate. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay for Richard Brooks, who lost to Sterling Silifant for In the Heat of the Night. Uh, Brooks was nominated five more times and won one for writing Elmer Gantry. Best Cinematography for Conrad Hall, who lost to Burnett Guffey for Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, He was nominated six more times and won three. And Best best Original Song Score, Best Score, basically, for Quincy Jones. Uh, who lost to Alfred Newman and Ken Darby for Camelot. Uh, Quinty Jones was nominated six more times, including Best Song that year. And a little fun fact, he is the first uh, Black nominee we've had on our list. That is a very interesting fact. Wow. All right. Should I do my, uh, my ceremony deets? Or, Pleb, do you have historic context? I do have historic context, if we want to get into that first. Okay. Um, there are two things, you know, there are, there's obviously the case this was based on or that the book was based on. And then of course the movie was based on, I'm not going to talk about that because I think there's more interesting stuff to talk about. However, there's a movie of it that I need to see someday. I'm yeah. There's, there's plenty there's of movies. information. I want to watch the one with Phil. I've never watched that one. Sorry, go on. <laughs> um, There's plenty of information if you care about that. What I want to focus on is going more into like the events that were going on at the time that may have affected how people saw the movie. Because this is a very a very fatalistic, very nihilistic movie, especially compared to things that we have seen uh since. Or not since, since uh, before this. Um, the first one is of course that the Vietnam War was in full swing and that was heavily affecting the American psyche especially the way um, the media was bringing the war into people's uh, living rooms in a way that had not been done before and has not been done since. Um, Because there was such a reach of global media, it was easy to be able to document um, all the horrors of war. And uh, since then, America's had a much uh, heavier hand with what information gets out. but especially near the end when you have some characters discuss the role of the media in the case that this film focuses on, you can kind of read into that as a reflection of the role of the media in the war. The second one, which just kind of goes to this idea of like a, a violent thread that's kind of working its way through society, is that 1967 was the summer or was the long hot summer. It's also the summer of love. However, Outside of the hippies in uh, largely black urban areas, there were a lot. Uh, there was a lot of civil uh, unrest, including one of the biggest riots in American history in Detroit. However, there were also riots in Atlanta, Boston, Newark, all over the country. I think I saw like 170 riots total. Um, and these were obviously spurred on f- by growing uh, dissatisfaction with unequitable housing, employment. Uh, treatment in the justice system, everything that you can imagine that we're still facing today was boiling over in uh, in a fever pitch. And so in 1967, the idea of like societal violence would have been something that was very front of mind for people. All right. Let's talk about the ceremony. Now, these are a ceremony that's a very... Very, uh, this is actually the big trivia, trivia, I feel like I should put in air quotes because it's not a good thing, is something that I was actually aware of before this, is that this is, I believe, the only, maybe the only Oscars to be postponed, and that's because it was originally scheduled for April 8th, which would have been, like, very close to the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, They postponed it for, I believe, his funeral, because he was shot on April 4th. I'm trying to find the information. It doesn't exactly say why a two-day... It was only, you know, two days of a delay. So, 
Oh, it's yeah, because the the funeral was on April 9th, so they pushed it to April, which makes sense because people wanted to attend the funeral. The black actors and you know allies in general, you know, they it was a much bigger deal than the movies at the time. So of course that was what people were thinking about when this had during this, not necessarily the Academy Awards, right? Um, so of course we talked about this last week. Now cinematography, art direction, and costume design are all one award. This is the first Oscar, so they included clips from the Best Picture nominees. This is the only time in Oscar history that three different films get nominated for the top five Oscars, which are picture, director, actor, and actress, and screenplay. The tough, the toughie is getting actor and actress, I feel like. The other two aren't, the other ones aren't as tough. But Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner all got those nominations. However, Best Picture, of course, went to In the Heat of the Night, which did not get an actress now, because I don't think there were women in it. Uh, <laughs> uh, awkward laugh. Uh, this is the first time in history that Edith Head did not receive a nomination for Best Costume Design. <laughs> Up until this point, every year that there had been a uh, uh, Best Costume Design Oscar, she got a nomination. Um, 18 of the acting nominees were present at the ceremony, which was a pretty high number at the time. Catherine Hepburn was shooting a movie. Spencer Tracy had died, so people weren't really mad he didn't show up. Um, Edith Evans, who was nominated for The Whisperers uh, in Best Actress, was the last performer born in the 1880s to receive an acting nomination. Um, this is the last Oscars on radio. Um, it was on TV too, of course, but um, there was no Governor's Ball. Originally, before the postponement, um, Sidney Poitier, Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Armstrong, and Diane Carroll all said that they were not going to come to the Oscars because they weren't. Um, they wanted to mourn for Dr. King. Um, so originally, Jack Lemmon and Shirley Jones were announced as replacements, but then once they delayed it, they were like, no, we'll show up, of course. Right? We're not going to ditch. Um, now... Couple other fun things is uh, Bonnie and Clyde and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner were the this is the only year that two films got nominations for all four acting nominations, all four acting categories. A couple milestones here is that John Williams got his first nomination this year. Obviously, he becomes one of the most nominated people of all time, right? We all know that, yeah. And the other big award of the night was that the Irving G. Falberg Memorial Award went to Alfred Hitchcock. Where he famously went up after a long tribute and said, thank you very much indeed. And he walked right off. <laughs> but yeah, that was the, um, that's the Oscars. Robert Wise presented it, by the way, to, um, you know, what's his face? Hitchcock. Yeah, Hitchcock. Oh, and Louis Armstrong performed The Bare Necessities. That sounds like I would have liked it. I would like to look at that performance. That sounds nice. <laughs> um, but yeah. That is, um, that's the Oscars this year. Oh, In Cold Blood. In Cold Blood is a movie, uh, based on a real murder. Um, uh, but you know, I think we'll, we might talk about that a little bit later on. I don't know. But, uh, it's about these two ex-cons who one of them has a tip that a farm, um, is in Kansas, right? farm in kansas has a safe with a lot of money so um you know recruits this other ex-con they go there they commit they kill everyone there so like five six people and then they go on the run um and the movie follows both the investigation to try to find them and follows them in the lead-up aftermath and then at the end of the film the actual events of the killings and tries to get into their um psychology what did you guys think of In Cold Blood? thought it was good. I liked it. Good movie. I think it's a movie I appreciate more than I really love. I, I'm, I think it's good. I'm not saying it's not good. I would all be lying if I didn't say there were points where I got very disengaged from it. But I also think it's one of those things where I think I might have made this comment on the podcast before, but if not, I'll say it again. It's like one of those things where, like, you know, Someone who's grown up on sitcoms today goes back and watches Seinfeld and be like, all the jokes are so derivative. It just feels like this is a massively influential film where, you know, I've seen this remade before in other places, like things full lifted from it, where it's probably not as exciting for me to watch it now. But at points while watching it, I remember, oh, this came out in 1967. That's crazy. Last time we watched was The Sand Pebbles. That's crazy. 
And in that regard, I did really enjoy it and thought this was like a massive leap forward for the crime drama type of movie that we see. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, I'm totally, Caleb's not allowed to say what he thought, but um, I think it's interesting that you say that it feels like a leap forward because I feel like I, this is such a film school thing to say. I feel like The Graduate is such a modern movie. Um, it just feels like this new era of movies. I just associate it with that era. Um, so I do agree. I feel like this is like a completely different frontier, basically. Yeah, There's that... stuff in this that wouldn't be out of place in a Fincher movie today. And that's, I know we're not at all the same thing on Fincher, like positively or negatively. But that's what I mean is like, you see the tricks in this today. Sorry, Caleb. Um, no, what, what Sarah was saying was basically my initial impressions is that um, this is, it feels different from what we've seen before because it's part of this new Hollywood movement that was starting up. You see with The Graduate, you see with Bonnie and Clyde, where it's, it's stripping away a lot of the spectacle and a lot of the artifice of what Hollywood productions were. And it's much more focused on, on kind of like the societal psyche of the time. And especially getting into kind of uh, like this uh, continued fascination with violence that you would see kind of throughout the 70s in, uh, in their films. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I think it has one part um, that kind of starts to lose me, but then the ending is absolutely riveting. Um, it reminded me, uh, because of the black and white, also because of kind of the surrealist nature of some of the scenes, remind me a lot of Night of the Hunter, which I'm a big fan of. Um, so yeah, big fan. All right, we all liked it. We have nothing to all talk right. about then. See you and next week. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. I don't think this is something you can really talk about the plot on because I think, in a way, it's very much priding itself to be a docudrama, and trying to be the like this is just the, these are the facts. You know, here's the story. We're shooting it kind of like with this crazy cinematography style for what we've seen so far um and with some really great i don't think surrealist is the right word but very like emotionally driven editing too um where um i don't know it's hard for me to like well talk about like you know i don't think it's it's hard to talk about like as a plot progression type of thing but i think we can jump around a bit unless you guys well i think there's one big aspect of the plot that and I'm, I've never read the book, so I don't know what it's like in the book. But um, so Capote had kind of a, a hand in the proceedings of the trial and of their executions. And um, so Capote was infatuated with Perry Smith. Um, he'd visit him all the time. He would give him gifts. Uh, Perry Smith left all of his possessions to Capote. Um, and the reason why it took so long for the book to come out is because he wanted to see it to completion, but he was so heartbroken that the object of his affections was getting executed that he kept trying to put it off. So I don't know what it's like in the book, but in the movie, they try to put a, they put some stand-ins, they put a narrator, they put a reporter, but it's interesting that Capote was telling this story and he's kind of pivotal to the plot, um, but he's just not really present in it at all. No, that's yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that background because there is a journalist character in this, but he talks to uh, Dick, the other killer, not Perry. And um, then Perry does give a book to a priest at the end, which I guess you could kind of see is based off of that um, exchange with Capote. But but the power dynamic is completely different there. It's clearly not a romantic thing. Um, I guess I guess the where you can see that. In uh, interact with the film is the fascination that this has with Perry. Um, Dick is kind of, Dick is there, and he's good performance, good character. But this is a movie that is focused on the inner psychology of Perry, partially because he's the one who committed the murders, but also because he is the character who. Um, I'm guessing the character. It goes back to Capote's fascination with him, but the character who the movie seems to have the most uh interest in and so you can see this um visually the movie focuses in on his uh like very small aspects of him moving forward 
focuses in on his internal motivation and it gets pretty deep into his relationship with his father which is um kind of kind of central to not the resolution because this movie doesn't really have a resolution but central to kind of the final statement that this movie makes did you guys i just want to say this very quickly and uh did you guys think that the guy who played dick looked like mark I hope Co was to my other podcast. No, you guys didn't make that no. connection. No, I thought I thought uh, he looked like Herschel Green from The Walking Dead. Does that guy look like the Matthew McFadden from Succession? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, well, wait a moment here. All right. Um, speaking <laughs> of actors, I feel like we have to talk about this. So Perry was played by Robert Blake. Um, Perry, of course, committed the murders. Um, Robert Blake. Oh, I'm looking now. <laughs> committed a murder. <laughs> I was unaware of this. Wait, Sorry. What? <laughs> I just opened up for Paige. It's Paige. Uh, so Robert like, Blake, oh. he he put a hit out on his wife. Um, and he was <laughs> he was acquitted. Say, can I say how a- Wiki describes it, which is unraveled in what some called an O.J. Simpson style case. <laughs> what some would call. Um, so he put a hit out on his wife, and um, I think I think it was like his ex-wife or his strange wife or whatever. And um, he was acquitted, which does not mean not guilty. It just means acquitted. Um, but then he was later found liable in a civil suit, and he went bankrupt. Um, he died very recently. Um, he kind of became a big joke all over again. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. He got his practice in, I guess. Hey, hey, but um, if it makes you feel better, you're going to be really mad at this detail about the game. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's novel, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is dedicated to Robert Blake, um, which uh, apparently that inspires Brad Pitt's character in that movie. <laughs> is uh, Which... Also checks out having seen that movie. I'm like, oh, okay. Because I know you haven't seen the movie, Sarah, but his character is accused of murdering his wife, and Leo's always like, no, no, he's a good guy. He's my friend. <laughs> so. D- don't watch the movie. It's bad. You know, would you believe me if I said I wasn't planning on it? <laughs> wait, 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 yeah. wait, wait. <laughs> so there was a joke at the Academy Awards this year about Robert Blake. Yeah. <laughs> we're gonna, I don't know. Was it Jimmy Kimmel? Is, yeah. that a, is it too late to put him in or something like that? Or It was like, we... everyone, please. Please get out your phones. It's time to vote at home. You think Robert Blake should be included oh, in yeah. the montage? Text, give me a Blake, too. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> this is just a uh, really weird story where it's like, this would be a very different conversation if that hit had gone through. Just, just remember that. Wait, Caleb, she did die. It- it did. Yeah, she did. She was killed. Yeah. It was that he got off on the initial criminal thing, but then later on was a, uh, isn't he like, it was, it was a civil suit and he lost the civil suit. Yeah. I remember what no, I said. No, I know. That. But Caleb is like, well, she's okay. It's like, no, she's but when died. you said civil suit, I imagine she sued him. She sued him. Because I like, like his YouTube channel was telling Robert Blake, colon, I ain't dead yet, says day two. That was his YouTube channel. Yikes. It's like OJ's book, If I Did It. It's like OJ's on Twitter when he goes, all right, all right, guys, listen up. When he's on the Jeremy Renner app. I do remember with OJ, that I always talking about OJ's before now. I wonder if he bought Twitter Verified, because I remember like they refused to verify him on Twitter. They're like, no, like, you, we know you're OJ, but we refuse. We're not... We're not doing that. You're not getting the birds. <laughs> Are you checking OJ's Twitter to see if I'm you bought I'm going Twitter to check. <laughs> I am going to check. It's going to be... Well, the problem is there's... Okay, so he is verified. Up, he is yeah. verified, but that's the thing. There's probably a ton of verified OJ. <laughs> he does the classic old man on Twitter thing where he just posts vertical videos of himself talking. I'm worried now that I'm looking at his Wikipedia page that he was in Lost Highway. I feel like I might have like been like, he's great in this movie, and now I know he's like murderer. <laughs> so he what said, do you think of him in Uncle Blood? 
So what are- well, I want to go back. I kind of want to stay on this topic just a little bit. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not OJ. But I did, you know, I had a conversation today when I was talking about this with my mom. And I was talking about, like, I brought up Robert w- Wagner as well, um, who allegedly, for legal reasons, I'll say allegedly, because he's still alive, um, killed. He's going to find us. <laughs> I know, he's going to sue me. He allegedly killed. His his children are, like, really aggressive about it. They're like, oh, he did it. Um, he allegedly killed Natalie Wood. Um, as far as I know, his career did not really take a hit. Um, but somebody like Robert Blake, obviously he did. Um, recently, Kevin Spacey <laughs> said, he said something very weird. He said, if he's found not guilty, then he knows people want to work with him. Kevin, why did you say if? Why has Kevin uh, Kevin Spacey said anything he said in the last six <laughs> years? I just, I find it interesting because I do believe that he's right. I think there are people who will want to work with him. And I find it interesting because, you know, we talk about like, cancel culture now and i feel like cancel culture was much more prevalent in the past as it should have been i don't know if you saw but the number one movie at the box office this weekend star somebody who wasn't canceled yeah that's my point there are that's my point yeah i know and it's like you have like these celebrities i mean i'm not saying for the record on the record, because this comes out way later. We're recording this after the flash came out. I'm not going after J Law if this guy of award Felix pulls it off. She's canceled too. Okay, well, Maddie Broderick. No. Maddie Broderick's in it. I don't care. Not to, no way near the same extent. Um, all of this to say, I think it's interesting. You know, obviously, it's interesting too because also in this movie is an actor. Sir, Jimmy Moore him. was canceled too. Sorry. <laughs> he was uh, at one point. So also in this movie is an actor named Jeff Corey who was uh canceled uh because he was once in the Communist Party, but was not actually he just didn't want to be a rat. But that was before um, this came out though. That was the he this yes, was part when it was come back. This but it took him a long time to recover, basically. I mean, you know, people being blacklisted, etc. So my point is obviously. People are always going to skirt the consequences. People are always going to. There's always going to be exceptions for people. People are always going to make excuses. People make excuses for Hitler and Harvey Weinstein and all kinds of people. But I do feel like nowadays we don't hold people to the same standard. I feel like, and I feel like even if there was somebody like Perry Smith today, I think people would be like, well, he's just misunderstood. I mean, you had, I mean, you had Truman Capote doing it. So I feel like now, in this age where things are so much more widespread, I do feel like people are are more are less likely to cancel, more likely to make excuses. Well, and I I heard somewhere. I wish I remember where, but it was a convincing argument that the only real way you can get canceled is if you get canceled from within your community. A lot of cancel cancelations happen from people outside. You know, either you know. People on the right trying to cancel things like the Little Mermaid because there's a black, you know, lead in it, or people on the left trying to cancel, you know, like some right wing figure because they said something racist, and then they're just gonna go do the right wing uh, media circuit and make twice as much money as they were. Um, the only so like what the story, I don't know, is weird because it's like, at what point does the public pressure kind of take away? And then add on um, the responsibility or just like the motivation for a community to cancel. Because people getting mad on Twitter isn't ever going to really cancel anyone. It's the people who have like levers of control who are going to cancel them. Like there are plenty of celebrities working today who are just bad people and everyone knows they're bad people. And they're in just, they don't talk about it. Like Harvey Weinstein was that. Everyone knew Harvey Weinstein was a sexual abuser. Hey, I'll have like, you know this very important thing is that when the Pope visited, Mark Wahlberg talked to him and apologized for making Boogie Nights and Ted. And uh, that was that's the only thing he felt like he needed to apologize for. Yeah. So. <laughs> there are plenty of people who do bad things. And it's like, 
we we focus on cancel culture a lot because it's it's gives us like it gives people who participate in it a sense that they have like control or a space within a narrative and it gives media a easy talking point but like it's really just it's nothing (laughs) all right i want to get back to the movie but i do want to actually go back to jeff cord before we do that i saw something interesting which was how he made his comeback which was that you know he was he was canceled or blacklisted because of being a communist or like being you know i don't know if he's a communist he just didn't want to be a snitch yeah he didn't want to be a snitch but the way he got back was he helped establish the actor's lab and then if you look at his wikipedia page it lists all of his students and there are some really big names in here it's like uh james hong jane fonda bruce lee uh leonard nimoy jack nicholson uh streisand robin williams all these were taught under Corey. And then eventually, back in the 60s, you know, he had all these connections, so he was able to get back in the movies, you know? Because it was like, hey, yeah, give my acting teacher a part. And people were like, we don't care anymore. So yeah, sure. And it's just interesting to me. Another thing I found that was interesting that to me is um, he was, he directed screen tests for Superman, where he played Lex always across the people who were testing for Superman, which I'm like, ooh, that's really interesting to me. Probably because Gene Hackman was like, I'm, I'm busy. But anyway, I, I just thought that was an interesting tidbit on how he got back into business because, I don't know, if you look at his page, there are a lot of big... Rita Moreno is also there, too. Um, but anyway. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing who Kevin Spacey knows. Great. Okay. If! Uh, if! Hey, I, wasn't he going to be in a Woody Allen movie? Was it, or something like that? <laughs> anyway. Uh, let's talk about this movie. Like, I do want to talk about this movie. As much as I thought that was an interesting digression on cancel culture there's a lot in the movie too beyond um what's his face is robert blake's life after that's a lot to dig into here um in particular uh i want to quote the reviewer i saw in letterboxd because it's like a professional reviewer who i follow um let me find it but i wanted to talk about the decision at, about unless there's I mean, we can talk about it first because i don't want to talk in order um decision to show the crime at the end of the movie because uh let me find it mike d'angelo who used to write for AV Club and now writes wherever, you know, they, they put him. Uh, he wrote that in 2011, in a movie, there's no way that withholding the murders for the dramatic climax isn't going to come across as exploitative. Did you guys feel like it was exploitative? Do you agree? Because I do think that is something that now with something like this, I do feel. But in this case, I feel like part of it is like the mystery of who actually committed the murder. No, I do think it's. Exp- I do think it's. I do. The whole thing is um, exploited, to be honest. I think the whole yes, movie is. <laughs> it is, but I. I think to enacting them, and I mean reenacting them, is. You know, it's it is, and you have to keep in mind too, um, and that's actually that was kind of something that surprised me that I liked it so much because this was in the back of my mind the entire time I was watching it because we have, uh, you know, Dahmer and. I was going to say, this really yeah. did open the floodgates for a lot of yeah. bad stuff. <laughs> but so the, so the family, um, the Clutters, they had two other daughters um, that were alive. And this movie came out. I mean, they weren't in the house. They were Obviously, they weren't killed. One of them um, is mentioned, like, in the dialogue. Yes, yeah, she's dead. mentioned. Um, and this the book came out seven years after the murders and the movie came out eight years and they didn't want to have anything to do with it they thought it was intrusive and they it was traumatizing and they in the movie they filmed at the house they filmed they used their horses they they used people in the actual town that they had talked to um and obviously capote also had a hand in that because he was in the town talking to everybody um so yeah, it's very it's very exploitative. I mean, it's 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's not good. I, I think. Oh, sorry. I don't think it's possible to make a based on a true story thing that isn't exploitative. Well, okay, let me clarify. But the greatest story ever told. Yeah, let me clarify. <laughs> exploited uh, historical, me. Historical <laughs> figures are obviously off the table. I think enough time passes. And then, of course, you have movies where the person, like biopics, where the person oversees things. Those 
But even then, like, you get something like Bohemian Rhapsody where the person that's actually about is dead, so it's other people. Yeah, and then the other people make, they slander him. (laughs) Yes, no. Um, So, like, there's some gray area here. Some cases are more obvious than others. But especially once you get into the true crime thing, it's all exploitative. And it's one of those things where if you're going to engage with it, you have to confront that and you have to just decide, is is this something that you can deal with? Is this something you can reckon with? while watching the movie. So like, I feel like by the time that scene had happened, I had already been like, okay, I'm willing to see, I'm willing to follow this movie where it goes. Um, unfortunately, I think the thing with that scene is it's just, or sequence, because it's like 10 minutes. I just think that's really where the movie starts to drag. Um, that and then the court scene afterwards. Interesting. Um, I was definitely out of it way before then, and then that sequence completely drew me back in. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what it was. I think maybe it was just that it's part of the part of it's the framing device of him telling the cop while they're driving to court. I'm not a big fan of that. I also think part of it's just like we had moved we had moved forward so much in the story and stuff that I don't think we needed to go back. I don't need the specific details. I don't even know need to know who killed who actually fired the shots. Because it's very clear by that point that both people were equally culpable. culpable. I, I just think it's... I don't know. Sarah, where do you fall on this? Because to me, I personally think that if that sequence is not in the movie, uh, I, I don't think I would have walked away with this as strongly positive towards it. Because I think, even though, yes, it is exploitative, I think this is a movie that is talking about the banality of evil pretty much a lot. And then to actually show it in like the most raw form in and I'm saying like with the context of us watching these movies in order that this feels like such a radically huge act of violence that we get to see. And it's disturbed. Like, I think even before like it becomes a murder when they're just like tie them up and it's like, this is so like graphic and like, like at one point I was like, even if they did survive, this would be like traumatic for them the rest of their lives. Like them being tied up on their bed. In the fact, the movie just, shows them being like, yeah, just do it. And it's like, I think that's such a strong part of the movie that it's like, this is what the movie's talking about. Like, where does this evil come from? And now we're just talking about where the evil comes from. You need to actually show the evil. That's that's my take on it. We, before talking about exploitedness of it, just as its own feature. Um, I mean, I think it was a well-done scene. I was engaged with it. I... I don't know. I have I have difficulty with just in general because I think when you think about speaking of being exploitative, I mean when you think about how this story came out, all the details, you know, they hung him up by his hand and then they put him on the mattress and then uh you know, Dick was going to rape the girl but then he got stopped. Like this is all stuff that happened allegedly and nobody can really know. But it's stuff that Perry Smith told Truman Capote. And I think it just, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a big thing to talk about, but it just feels like, I don't know. At a certain point, I feel like where is the line between entertainment and, you know, like actually processing this crime? Because I was really, and kind of to go back to the movie, I was really surprised by how stylized the movie was and how not like a docudrama it was. Um, I think because when we think of true crime now, we think of documentaries and investigation discovery and stuff like that. And I think for this movie to be so artistically inclined, I don't know. It just, it feels like, I get it. You need to see it, but I feel like it's only for the purposes of watching a movie. I feel like. Okay, okay. I'm glad you said that because at the point you said entertainment, I'm like, I think what's great about this sequence is it's not entertaining. It's painful to watch. And I can't think of the time when we watched, we haven't watched a movie like this yet that is nihilistic and depressing. And it's like, you don't want to watch it, you know? Like, that is interesting to me as an evolution of cinema's film. But also, I want to get back to the exploitation argument because I did kind of gloss over it when I talked about it, which is, do I think this is exploitative? Yes. 
Um, and as Caleb said, all, all things like this are exploitative in some regard. Um, but I, I think, I don't know. I don't want to be like, this movie is important because it shows the evil of man. Because I think even the ending of the movie kind of is like, when they talk about, it's not the same thing, but when they talk about like, like their story needs to be told and this will teach people lessons not to do it again. Like, no, people will do this again. This will always keep happening. And I'm like, I guess, I guess like, it's just one of those things. I don't know. I feel like well, you need it personally. I think you need the ending. And I think also, I think also, sorry, last thing is with Caleb saying that like, um, he doesn't like the framework of it. I think that framework is important for what you're saying, which is that this is what Capote wrote. It's not what actually happened. So I think you do need the framing of this is this guy's testimony of what happened. It's not necessarily true because you just showed it in the moment. That's truth. It's not. Um, I don't think anything in this movie shown in the moment is truth. I think all all of this is extremely subjective. Um, obviously, you have the parts with where the father replaces um, Perry's father replaces characters within a scene. That's, that's obviously your gain in his head. I feel like from the beginning, it's very clearly. Uh, told from an unre- unreliable standpoint. I think maybe um, that's what it comes down to, is that it is so subjective. And I think what I'm having trouble reconciling is that it's subjective towards the wrong side. Um, and obviously, you know, you can't talk to the clutters. I mean, you could talk to the, the kids, but they didn't want to be talked to. Um, so he talked to their neighbors, he talked to their friends, but then he ultimately landed on this viewpoint of their killer and I don't know. I think it's, I think that it's, it's okay to say, you know, they should be talked about, but I think it's, I, I would be curious to see the Philip Seaverhoff movie because I'm wondering if that movie frames it in such a way that it does talk about exploitation and fame and stuff like that. Because so Truman Capote became, good. I just haven't seen it, you know, <laughs> it's supposed to be good. So, so last episode, you mentioned that Truman Capote only ever wrote one thing, and that was untrue. However, you were not technically incorrect, per se. This was the last thing that he ever wrote um, because he was so depressed by Perry Smith dying. And then he also was very depressed because Harper Lee became uh, a superstar, and he felt like she was surpassing him, and he was so much better than her. Um, so it kind of, the fame aspect kind of carries over into real life it's so it's i think that the novel the concept of the novel is fascinating this kind of idea of you know real life and fiction not fiction but you know crime fiction kind of blending together and how capote ended up shaping the story i just wish that he didn't shape it in the way that he did i also think and this is one last thing i want to say about the ending at least at least for me is i made a comment and i think you guys kind of ran with it, which is fine because i made it and it's like where it's like, I like this movie, but I don't really like what it's wrought. But it's like, I, can we blame this movie for that? No, I think someone else, it's not like, at, I mean, at the time, yes, in 1960, this feels like a very like big concept. But now, as we said, this is like everywhere. Uh, if It's not to blame Cody for coming up with the idea. It's like, let's, mur- let's interview the murderer and see what happened. I'm sure there would have been other people down the road. There have been other people since then. Um, would they have been as good writer of Capote? I don't know. Um, but. I feel like me being like, what has this wrought onto us is like a weird way to, I shouldn't put it that way. Cause it's like this genre would have existed anyway at some point, you know? And also I was going to say, Sarah, something you said in my mind, which was, um, I don't know if it's good to frame these stories from the view of the killer. And obviously I agree with that hundred percent, but again, this was the first time this was done really, which doesn't mean that it's magically morally okay but it's like at the time this was like this i'm gonna say it's a novel thing as if like it was like reading this book and you would be disturbed by it like it is getting into the head of this guy i feel like well i i don't want to say i disagree with you i think i think at the time we had things like um you know we did have um you know early slasher movies like psycho and peeping tom and stuff like that and we did have noirs where we saw i mean we saw in double indemnity we saw a really graphic murder oh no <laughs> but it's like you did say honey baby a lot um <laughs> but i think 
I I don't know. I kind of want to push back on, you know, Truman Capote didn't create this because I feel like he kind of did. I get what you're saying. I think that it was disturbing for people, but I think it was disturbing because it was how he wrote it was almost in a fictional style, but it was true or as true as, you know, the world was going to get. And I think that's kind of where, I don't know, I think it's disturbing, but I think people like it. I mean, people like true crime. I mean, true crime is a huge thing. And I think it's this no, idea that some. Sorry, sorry, I think it's this idea that thing. something like we know it and we know people like this and it's fascinating to us and it's fascinating to be like on the peripheral of it. And I think when I think that Capote was able to frame this horrific crime in such a way that was more digestible for people. I would agree. I don't really have much to add. Just because I haven't read the book, and I never will read the book, because why would I read this book? I might watch the movie with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, but... I feel like we've basically read the book. (laughs) I mean, this is basically the book. Caleb, you've been quiet. Do you have thoughts? Well, I mean, y'all have been doing a pretty good job holding down the conversation. Um, But I I guess... the way I would like to expand on it then is by talking about the ending because you know, I don't, you get into their time on death row, Perry and Dick's time on death row. And then the finale is them being killed. And um, especially with a lot of uh, conversation with Perry and a priest um, kind of leading up to that. And it's, that is especially, I think, when you're supposed to be as sympathetic for them. And I think that's that's an interesting place to take this idea of, should we tell this story from their perspective? How much influence should we be giving them? Because, like, you know, I'm against the death penalty. I don't think anyone should be executed. And I think it's important to sympathize with people in that situation. It's such a visceral and... Um, unimaginable situation to like walk up the steps of a gallows knowing that you'll be dead within a minute and I think that's important to try to put yourself in the shoes of people who will be doing that because I think it is an unjust thing to do and I think part of part of the process of like undoing that is by sympathizing with the people there however like I also get the very uh the very instinctual um side of you that would be like yeah let them hang literally like these people did something awful and then because you got to see them do that awful thing in the movie uh, that's probably uh that's probably front of mind for a lot of people so i'm just wondering what y'all think in terms of like the movie and the book maybe giving too much credence to Perry's perspective and how that relates to the final scene. You want to go first or should I go first? Um, well, I do think that the movie has its own side. I think the movie definitely wants, I don't think the, I don't necessarily think the movie wants you to feel sympathy, but it does want you to see how horrible the death penalty is. Um, but I do think that's an interesting point is that I think that you kind of are as a viewer. It doesn't it doesn't blatantly say like, oh, isn't this so sad that he that he hanged? Because I think with the other guy, with with Herschel, you're like, whatever, who cares? Um, what's his name? Dick. <laughs> and I think that it's I think the movie does a good job of, you know, think it it does kind of make you think like this movie really makes you think. This movie says a lot about society. Um, you do live in a society. This movie does make you think like, like, is this bad? Like, did, like it, it does end on such a somber note, but is it because it's the closing of the chapter or is it the closing of his chapter? And I do think that that's, I do think the movie takes a side, but I think you could interpret it in your own way, which I think is good. I think it is, I think the ending is very interesting because I do think up until that ending, including the courtroom scene, I don't think even being from the viewpoint of them ever makes me think this movie wants me to be against the death penalty. You know, I think that this, 
I think the purpose of that sequence where he like pulls out the Bible, even though you know we we never like a Bible comes out in a situation like this. Now we kind of like giggle, but it's like nah, 1966, or this makes sense to me that like this is like the big like end of the movie where it's like how dare you guys? This person, these people do deserve the death penalty. I think the movie makes a convincing case for it. Where if it ended there, I'd be like okay, like. I my personal feelings about the death penalty aside, I get why this is ending in 1960. So the fact that it goes on for like 20 minutes more of them waiting, I think it's such an interesting choice because I do think it's at odds with the rest of the film. Um, I do. I don't think that it it earns a. I think you are meant to feel like, okay, this is how this is like how evil was molded, but evil still must be punished. And so the fact that the last 15 minutes is like, oh man, these guys are nervous. It's like I don't I don't feel sympathy for them still. But it's like, I think it's an interesting way to go. And I was thinking about now, you know, well, because it's a movie, too. I was thinking about that movie Just Mercy that came out a couple years ago that's entirely about the death penalty. And I was thinking about how there's a sequence in that movie. Have you both seen or Caleb, have you seen it? No. There's a sequence in the middle of that movie where there's someone in the movie played by Rob Morgan who goes through the death penalty because he was never going to get off because he did commit, like, he, he blew up, he made a pipe bomb and blew up, like, someone's car and killed people. Um... But there's a sequence in the middle of the movie where he, you go through the entire process of it, and it's like they show the people and like the inmates hearing him scream, like hearing the, like the buzz of the chair, and it's like they all like clank. It's the best. Like that movie is actually very underrated. I think it's a very. I, I remember when um when the George Floyd protests happened, they actually put that movie out for free everywhere. So it was like this is a movie about a recent black icon who was good because Brian Stevenson. Um, but I remember that sequence just in general, really, that's the scene from that movie that stuck with me. Because it's like, this is why the death penalty is bad. Because even if this guy did not deserve, you know, like, this guy does deserve punishment. But this is not, because the movie's just Murphy, so it's like, this is not a just punishment. This is a terrible, terrible punishment. And when this whole sequence is going on in this, it's like, these people are horrible. But I, I think it's, a, it's one of those things where it's like, this is a different message from the director. That we want to put on in the end of the movie, but it doesn't really fit with what we just watched, which is why it feels weird to me personally. Even it's if yes, of, yeah, sorry. It's kind of like you know these these code movies that we watched, where it was like it was you know things that were like adapted by on adapted from books, where it would be like the book would end a certain way, and then you know like. The board would be like, you have to, you have to punish this character. This character has to have a, this character has to have a bad ending, or the ending needs to be happier, or something like that. And I feel like this is almost like subverting that, where it's like, yeah, they're getting punished, but they're gonna get punished. Like it continues on, and it's like this. It is like this. It's like twenty minutes or ten minutes of them, you know, waiting and and basically suffering. Um, and it is like, and it is, I mean, it is, and then it's kind of interesting with the year of the movie, because it is kind of those, is that, that turning point in Hollywood where things are, you know, more nihilist. And it's interesting kind of what the, <laughs> what the intentions were here. I also just think, maybe this is me like tipping my opinion too much, is that, and never mind, I won't say it, because I do think the death penalty is horrible, and I, I'm, I'm very anti-death penalty. But in a way, it's like, I don't know. I feel like life in prison would have been a more appropriate punishment for what these guys well, did anyway. Well, it's... That's just me, though. <laughs> I don't mean honestly, to, like, judge off what I saw in the movie, what these guys deserve. These characters honestly, in the movie. some prisons, I feel like life in prison is probably yeah. worse. That's, that's yeah. what I kind of mean. That's what in, I, in the but. platonic idea of a prison, I, I don't know. Um, it's it's just, it's all kind of worms. We don't really need to get into all ideological yeah, kind of worms. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to dig into there. Yeah. I I do think that listening to y'all, I might have projected a little too hard on it. Um, and especially because like I do find it, I find those last ten fifteen minutes or so so engaging. Where like especially the courtroom stuff, my eyes were starting to just kind of glaze over for a minute. Um. But yeah, it's, you should watch it's, Just Mercy though. Both of you should. It's a really good movie. Sorry, yeah. go on. It's been it's been one that I've been needing to get to. Um, for Michael B. You know, Michael B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan's that. fantastic. One of his best performances. Sorry. Go on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and I, I mean, 
that that is kind of a point that um two characters have a conversation uh in between the hangings of the two people where it's like nothing's gonna nothing's gonna come from this in a year there will be another case that will have everyone you know everyone's attention um and it is that nihilism that uh you were talking about um and i i don't know i i wonder if my reading of that ending is me trying to put meaning onto like you know what's what's supposed to be a pure fatalistic ending hmm. i don't know <laughs> i gave my thoughts sorry do we talk about uh how paul newman c mcqueen were most in this? <laughs> What a what a what a story! I am curious. I I've never seen Bonnie and Clyde, but I wonder how it compares to this. I feel like it's more of an adventure movie. If that makes sense. it is. It it's definitely more fictional. It's definitely, but like Bonnie and Clyde sucked. Like they were bad people. Yeah. So I wonder, like, how they if they even tried to like to make them seem sympathetic. I mean, I think a couple years later is uh, I don't know what year it is. I'm going to quickly check, but Terrence Malick's Badlands. Um, it's a kind of like you know it's about yeah that's 1973 so a couple a bit later but not too far later um, that's a movie that is like Bonnie and Clyde and it's also Malick so it's like you know a bit dreamy at points but I remember the end of that movie is I don't actually you know what I don't remember the end of that movie I know I know one of them gets shot but it's like I don't remember it's like a happy thing or a sad thing you well, know Bonnie and Clyde the ending is did they change the ending the ending is pretty notorious. No, it's it's based in real life, but it is kind of it is. I don't know. I guess again, I haven't seen it, so I guess I shouldn't have brought it up. But it is like it's such a dark ending, and I feel like I don't know. Is this the year where we're looking at these horrible people and trying to subvert how we feel about them? I don't know. I think I think the difference there is that Bonnie and Clyde are like pieces of American mythology. Um, even when that, you know, that movie was obviously closer to their crime spree, but, um, it wouldn't have been as contemporary, contemporary feeling as this, but that's when you get um, into the historical context. Like, I don't think I'd call Bonnie and Clyde. I haven't seen it either. I just, but concept alone, I don't think it's exploitative where in cold blood is. Of the uh, Richard Brooks movies we've seen, is this his best film? I think easily. The other two were Blackboard Jungle and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Oh, yeah. Although I like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I did like Basically, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. It's a guy who's... This is something nice. We have a guy who has improved with each film. <laughs> That's so nice. We don't usually get that. <laughs> Apparently he was a jerk. He's like He would like yell at people on set. Well, he died in 1992. So... Bye. Damn. Rest in peace. I do see that his uh, wiki page does have an entire section about his character being unlike. Perpetually <laughs> angry is what it says. Oh no. <laughs> um, but all right. Do we have anything else to say about this or should we move on? Uh, this movie is not as exploitive as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well. Sorry. You brought it up, so it's been boiling in my mind ever since. <laughs> I hate to see, I have great news is that once upon a time I probably won, won an Oscar, so we'll never talk about it. Sarah? Yes. What was this nominated for? Uh, best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Score. Yeah, I mentioned it briefly. I can talk about it again. Uh, the cinematography here is very astounding. Um, the constant, the way you, I feel like there's a thing now and it's been like this for a bit, like even since I was in film school where people talk about cinematography and like post a still image of, so on social media where it's a still. When what cinematography really is, is how the camera moves too. And I think the way the camera moves in this movie is always astounding and how it utilizes the shadows to create something that feels like a newspaper reporter is there taking a photo constantly. Um, I think it's a very cool look. I think it's incredible. I think this movie looks incredible. And then there's the other stuff here is good too. I think it's got great direction. I think the screenplay is probably pretty well adapted. And I think the score is memorable. But I think the cinematography is really where I'm like, whoa. You know, I think it's got to be cinematography. I will give it 
a score. I thought the score was really good. I thought the score was so different from everything we've heard. Um, just very dissonant and uncomfortable. I'm I'm looking to see if Quincy Jones is producing <laughs> the color purple. I gotta say, also side note: this uh one AFI's number eight courtroom drama, which is such a dumb category to slot this in. I know that is weird. I, I guess they maybe didn't have a crime category. Yeah, no, uh, this should have gone. Movie. No, I guess gangster. I guess it's not a gangster movie. It's not a crime category. We yeah we we ran into another movie that similarly was on the courtroom list and it had one scene in a courtroom well uh the new one is produced by quincy jones as well so he may get his oscar we will definitely talk about him again it's not a spoiler because the color purple original one has the record for most noms and no it's not a spoiler um i'm also gonna give it cinematography um you know we're getting into the time when the black and white photography is becoming more and more of a uh, a choice and more and more of a um, a driven decision. And I think you can easily see that here. And the beginning is so stark on the bus, focusing it on the shoes, cutting back between uh, Perry playing guitar, the little girl, and then Perry lighting the match and moving into the light. Just incredibly astounding uh, images all throughout. I think it's really interesting to watch this movie, having seen him. I don't know if you remember who Conrad Hall is, because uh, oh wait, Sarah, you would have seen this movie. Caleb wasn't in our year, but he's the one who, who needs made, sleep. Who needs sleep? I think about that movie. I think about that movie all the time. I think about. I think about. Who needs I think about that sleep? movie constantly. I think about um, the sleep debt thing, where it's actually the previous night, like two nights ago, that affects you. Today, I think about it constantly. When Haskell Wexler died, I was like, he is from who needs sleep. I think about it all the time. I, I was going to say, Con- wait, is, so is Conrad Hall that guy? Or no, that- Haskell Wexler was the guy who, Haskell Wexler, Haskell Wexler played, or he made it. Conrad Hall died during the movie, and he was okay. friends with him. Because I remember him being in Who Needs Sleep because they talked about Road to Perdition, which was in development at the time. And the thing I was going to say is I've seen Road to Perdition, which is a movie where the cinematography is better than everything else about it. Uh, but I remember being like, wow, this is definitely like, you know, the culmination of a man's work. And then I see this and I'm like, oh, no, he always had it. Like, you know, it's like it's like this, this guy always made stuff that looked really great. It's not like he had to learn it. He always had it. So. Um, but all right, add a nom. Um, Robert Blake, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna give this best editing. Uh, the is so quick. It's the editing is so quick here. It's constantly cutting to something new. Um, and even in sequences that I don't like their inclusion, I don't like their inclusion from a story perspective. The editing is still uh very good. Except maybe in the courtroom scene. The courtroom scene just can't be saved. That was a boring scene. But, you know, all throughout, big fan of the editing. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to say supporting actor for Scott Wilson. Um, so he's supporting? I think so. I think Robert Blake is, I think they're pretty equal, but I think that just in terms of what he does in the movie, I feel like Scott Wilson is more of a support. Um, but they are very, very equal. I did think about giving him best actor, but I'm gonna say supporting, um, because I think that's probably how he would be campaigned. Um I thought he was good. I thought that he he was abhorrent and slick and Looks charismatic like in a in a slimy way. He doesn't look like Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go with going by editing. I think it's insane this wasn't nominated for the wedding. I think the tricks I feel like in a way. That's me what makes this feel have its time. And I think that's the, my, me looking at the noms is like, okay, so this was have its time. Cause I don't know how you watch this movie, like this movie, and don't immediately put it on your palette for editing. I think the editing and how it becomes dreamy, how perspective shifts, how like it will quickly cut around like the kills at points. It will do some crazy cuts like in time back and forth. I think this is an incredibly showy editing movie. And I think it feels very revolutionary because of the, ed- I think 
the I think the cinematography is perfect execution of something that's been worked on for a while. I think the editing feels like something radically new and something we still see today and not in stuff like this, but in other cool like art house stuff. I think the editing is fantastic. The editing was what I was ready to give twin for, and it's not even nominated for it. So it's gotta be film editing. So yep, that's me. You guys are gonna wish me happy birthday? Happy birthday, Danny. Hey. No. Can you give me a gift on this your birthday and tell me what we're covering next? Yes. We're going to the 41st Academy Awards in 1968. Can I have a drum roll, please? We're watching Star! Directed by Robert Wise. This is a film with 887 views on Letterboxd. It is a film that no one has watched. It is Robert Wise's follow-up production-wise, really, to Sound Music because Sam Pebbles was already in production while he was doing, like, you know... You know, I mean, Sam Pebbles was the actual follow-up, you know what I mean? But it wasn't, like, in response to Sound of Music, right? So this is Robert Wise's follow-up to Sound of Music with Julie Andrews back. Um, and it's a movie that no one has seen and apparently doesn't really exist. So I'm very curious how it is. <laughs> Um, we're gonna have, maybe have a guest for it. Maybe. Yeah. We'll see. If it all works out, I'm very excited. Yeah. But yeah, star. Happiness is a girl called Judy. And the logline is Gertrude Lawrence rises to state stardom at the cost of happiness. So okay, three hours long. All right. Uh, I'm Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterbox at Blankness. You can also listen to my other podcast, Looking for the Ocean, a Pixar Journey, which is not a true crime podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> I am Caleb Bunn. You can find me from Caleb. You can find me at Caleb from the Real World on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New 52, which I do with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Hey, Joe. Do you, do you think that Perry Smith is innocent? <laughs> what were you going to ask? I was going to ask him about Robert Blake, but we can ask about Perry. That's fine. Do you think Robert Blake, do you think, do you think Tarantino is innocent? Vote now. <laughs> Vote now for our next episode. Um, yes, no, maybe so, <laughs> not in that order. Um, you can find is me. Andy Muschietti innocent? Sorry. Does Andy Machete deserve rights? <laughs> uh, you can find me on Letterboxd. My name is Sarah Knopf. You can find me on Instagram at SGK29ESSGEKY29. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Snub Club, Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, Twitter, Snub Club Pod. All right. We'll see you next time with Star. See you. Bye.